Welcome to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. In episode one, Elisa and I watch and discuss the Star Trek Discovery trailer with our good friend, fellow Trekkie, and scientist extraordinaire, Peter Gao. So, uh, my name is Peter Gao. I'm currently a researcher at NASA Ames Research Center. I majored in physics back in undergrad way, way back. Um, I've been at Caltech for the last six years uh, studying planetary science, mostly focused on chemistry and clouds and hazes in planetary atmospheres. And I do fairly similar things now that I'm at NASA. Oh, that's great, Peter. Uh, when did you start watching Star Trek, though? This is the real question, right? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> More important. Uh, so it was way back in the heydays of the 90s, uh, late 90s. I was just a little boy, and I happened to tune into uh, Star Trek Voyager at the time. And um, I loved it. I thought it was very interesting. Of course, as uh, a young, uh, you know, a small boy, I didn't really think too much or think too deeply about the concepts. I just thought it was a really cool show about spaceships and interesting people. And a funny story that happened was it was uh, the end of season six. So it was Equinox, part one. And I watched it and I thought, wow, this is really cool, but why does it just end like that? What's going to happen later? And being a small kid, I didn't understand the concept of uh, seasons of TV shows and reruns. So the next week, uh, I guess an episode from season three popped up, and I was like, wow, Janeway's hair got, you know, it's, it's different. It's in a bun now, and seven of nine got replaced by a blonde girl. Wow, things just changed so fast between the last episode and now. But uh, yeah, I later learned that uh, that's not quite true. It's <laughs> not quite what happened. What do you love most about Star Trek? So I've given this a lot of thought, and I think... Uh, besides the cool technologies and the interesting plots and very uh, well-written characters and uh, a very well-developed uh, developed universe, I think the one major concept is that uh, all of these people have everything handed to them, exactly, basically. I mean, they, you know, they can order food from the replicator, they can travel almost anywhere in the universe. Free food! You're such a grad student. Oh, absolutely. You know, I would stand in front of that replicator all day and just... just order pizza. Grad student undergrads would do that too. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say we're hungrier. So, you know, given all this stuff that they have, they choose to use their energy to explore the universe instead of, say, waging wars across um, civilization and all these other terrible things that we're dealing with now. Now, they use that energy, use that effort to go out and see what's out there. I think that's wonderful and I hope, you know, I can do that one day. That's awesome, Peter. I think that's that's pretty relatable. Now, I know that you're both huge Captain Janeway fans. Is it correct to say that Captain Janeway is your favorite captain? Oh, that's so hard. I mean, yes. yeah, she's, she's definitely my favorite. <laughs> I right. might be a little biased, though, because I just love the idea of a female captain. So, so you both you both love Captain Janeway. She's the number one captain for you. Yeah. I want you to, to defend that to me. Because I love Captain Janeway, too. I grew up with Voyager. Right? Oh, be careful, I, Mike. You know, but, but, <laughs> but Captain Janeway is not my favorite captain. So, convince me. Who's your favorite captain? No, convince and me. Then we <laughs> I'll let you know. Uh, but I could... This any, isn't against, fair. No, no, no. May, tell me why Captain Janeway... Beats all the other captains in Star Trek. Janeway is the only scientist. 
She can actually engage with her science officers about the things that matter on her missions, whereas everyone else is just a guy with a gun who settled down into a like captainship role. She she knows what she's talking about, and she knows how to interact with her crew and make decisions based on her own judgments instead of just taking Spock's word for it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And the other thing I, I you know I love about Janeway is that she was determined from day one to complete her essentially one mission, which is to bring all these people home. I mean, Kirk, he was out there, uh, you know, he had a, essentially a new mission every day, and it's just, oh, let's do this thing, and we're done, and let's move on. And, you know, similarly, which, I mean, I'm not knocking them, but essentially, you know, going from one thing to another, it seems that they've always had um, sort of a, a, a fallback position. You know, if it's too bad out there, we'll just hightail it back to Earth, everything will be fine, we'll get the ship fixed, everything's fine. Janeway, on the other hand, was all by herself out there, uh, her ship, and she had no fallback position. There was no Federation out there. She had to complete the mission on her own uh, and, of course, with her crew, but they were alone. She had to keep them all together, too, which is a leadership task far beyond anything, I think, that we saw from the other captains having to deal with. Like, individual episodes, sure, there were conflicts. Just think about the Galileo shuttle, Mm -hmm. um, that one episode from TOS. But... Um, as far as actually having to keep people feeling positive in the face of... It's almost like the Kobe, Kobayashi Maru. It's almost like she had a real Kobayashi Maru and she cheated it, which is... She hacked reality. She didn't just hack a computer program. So yeah. I like Janeway for that, too. Yeah. Also, her buns are on point. <laughs> We've all seen this trailer multiple times already, so it's not our first reaction, but we haven't talked about it as a group yet. So let's just start this thing. So here's this weird desert-like planet. Science fiction loves deserts. Cinematic. Indeed. Ten years before Kirk, Spock, and the Enterprise. Bones? Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, oh. I'm gonna pause it there. Yeah, where's Bones? Where's Bones? Everyone yeah. forgets Bones and. There was actually an issue with that in the original series, right? With the, the initial title sequence with yep. DeForest Kelly demanding to be put on as a main character as well because his character was just as central as Spock yeah. and Kirk. Let's keep playing. Doctor, where are we going? We have no map. And you can't set a course without a star. There was discovery. It's hard to imagine. You've served under me for seven years. Commander Burner. I think it is time we talked about you having your own command. Okay, I'm going to pause this here. Um, so just something immediately that I noticed, and uh, it, it's not science, but perhaps it's pretty significant. Um, we open up this trailer for Discovery with two women of color um, talking to each other, and they're in command positions, which is, if you, if you think back to how Star Trek started with diversity, we got Uhura. And, I mean, the rest of the bridge crew was arguably diverse for its day, but, I mean, it's, it's come a long way. That's a, that's a wonderful point. Yeah, more yeah. and more studies are showing that, I mean, science communities are more effective when they're diverse, too, so mm -hmm. perhaps relevant. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> going forward, you know, seeing more diversity in science fiction is only going to bode well for increasing the amount of diversity in the STEM fields. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, pretty. <laughs> Back there. They never seem to settle on one. Great unifiers are few and far between, but they do come. Often such leaders will need a profound cause so for their followers to rally around. Sarek Spock's dad. 
good the Vance Flare is there. Optic of unknown origin. New alien species. Yes. It would be irresponsible to leave whatever that is unknown. What have you done out there on the edge of Federation space? Exposure suits. Computer. Enable igniter. Spock asked and, uh, This fall. This fall. I like the music. All right, all right, all right. Klingons. Oh. <laughs> Klingon brow ridges. Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves. We don't know what's happening here. Okay. So the canon gave us some pretty compelling workarounds for the whole brow ridge problem with the original series in Enterprise, and it looks like they're yet again backpedaling on, on the Klingon design. Well, this as, is my... As somebody who cares about consistent world building, this just, oh, it hurts. This does, this also uh, bugs me a little bit, and this bugged me in Into Darkness as well, the Klingons had brow ridges, when this is supposed to take place before the era of the original series, so that is after the... I think it was a virus? It was a virus. Yep. Yeah, then they used human DNA Augment, for the cure. Augment virus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, so it was well explained in Enterprise, and um, to sort of disregard that is honestly a little bit offensive to hardcore fans because you kind of remove part of Okay, the, let's try and save it, though. Yeah. So well, how could these Klingons... We don't know much about these Klingons. Maybe they're from a different community or something like that. Like, Klingons are a space-faring civilization. There's a chance that this is a pocket group. So maybe we should reserve our nitpicking until they show us the Klingon High Command has brow ridges. Then we can kind of assume that the whole population has them and Enterprise was dumped on yet again. Yep. You can always have an immune population when you have a virus. This is a perfect science question that we can talk about in a later episode, you know? Oh, Bring yeah. on a biologist, an immunologist, talk about how genetic engineering actually works. Um, so, yes, we'll return to this, and we'll talk about Klingons much more later. All right, let's keep going. Captain, what signatures detected? Contact Starfleet Command. We have engaged the Klingons. Pause here, just like to say that echoes Picard's line, we have engaged the Borg. <laughs> just yes. want to put that out there, just want to put that out there, continue. You will never learn, Vulcan, your tongue is too human. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to save all of you. Target's neck, cut off its head. Starfleet doesn't fire first. We have to. My people were biologically determined for one purpose alone, to sense the coming of death. I sense it coming now. Oh, shoot. <laughs> so it's in. Chills yeah. every time. Absolutely. So for me, definitely, uh, I think his name is Lieutenant Saru, uh, the science officer, saying my species has been biologically determined to sense the coming of death. Yeah, I don't know how you could do that. What does that mean? That it's kind of, well, Star Trek has implied that there's sort of a metaphysical reality. Uh, and you've got beings like Q, you've got beings like Apollo <laughs> um, existing in this canon. So the idea that there are creatures or... Um, maybe some kind of physical information that can be transmitted through dimensions or other modes of being beyond the familiar, um, especially time, uh, is not entirely un unwarranted. So it could be possible that this species can pick up on something 
existing in those other modes of reality and maybe kind of feel through time a little bit. But as far as these three dimensions plus time, I don't, I don't know how that would work. And also, why would this species develop this ability or even ent- be engineered to have this ability? Is it evolutionary? evolutionarily helpful in any way. If it would have to be, they'd have to be able to change that reality for it to be helpful, right? They'd have to sense right. death and then avoid it, which creates all kinds of, like, paradox. If you're looking, if you're saying this information is coming from, like, some kind of information that looks at time and then says, oh, this death is going to happen, if they then get that information about the death occurring, you've got a paradox. If they act on it, the death won't happen. So how could they have gotten the information that death yes. is going to occur? <laughs> All right. We need, there's, a, there's a must, a most needed uh, episode about time travel mm-hmm. that we need to uh, bring in a physicist, bring in a physicist yes. for. Um, extra dimensions, of course, and then of course the whole biological aspect, evolution, right? Evolution. I'm looking forward to that one. Yes. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. So one line caught my attention, and it was that um, the main character's tongue is too human. To speak spoken. Yes. I yeah. think we need a linguist here to talk about Pretty languages. Yeah, I really want to do a linguistics episode. Yeah. Tongue position is actually super important for enunciating, especially vowels. And you'd be surprised how little movement it takes to change the entire sound of a vowel. So it's it's entirely possible, I think, that even just having like one or two different muscle shapes could completely change the way a species would articulate language. Just look at people who have speech impediments and stuff. It takes something so small to change somebody's ability to articulate properly. I think it's totally feasible that early early on in the history of humans learning to speak Vulcan, <laughs> it, it could have been a misconception that humans weren't actually physically capable of of this, but we know Hura can do it, so he's yeah. obviously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Humans can do anything in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> We're all powerful. Just determined. Okay, well, a couple of images really stuck out to me from this trailer. First of all, there seems to be a forming solar system, and I think that's going to be one of our earlier episodes talking about protoplanetary disks, and we'll bring in an expert to tell us more about how planetary systems and star systems form. And then the other thing was this moment where we all went, ah, right? We, went, we all reacted to it in sync. And it was when the ship, which is, I think, the USS Shenzhou, yeah. right? It's not the Discovery yet. And let's just pause, actually, right now. And This has got to be an episode trailer, right? Yeah, it's, it's definitely just the, the trailer like for episode one. And it it's, like it's a such a high-quality production. Yeah. But what I wanted to point out was this is a... You know, a ship in Star Trek is also a character. Absolutely. And this ship is not named something in English. This is Chinese, right? Yep. Shenzhou? Yep. Yep. I don't I don't speak Chinese, so I don't know what Shenzhou means or if it's a place. Do you, Peter? I do speak Chinese. And uh, uh, the spelling I've seen uh, means is actually pronounced Shenzhou. Shenzhou, yeah. okay. And it means uh, <laughs> mystic ship. Oh. Crazy. <laughs> Magic ship. Mystic ship. That is really cool. Yeah. So pronounce it one more time for us. Shenzhou. Shenzhou. Okay, I will try to say that instead. Your tones are great, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Elise. So both of them speak more Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyhow, visually, what happens in this trailer is that the Shenzhou bursts through these yellowish clouds, uh, almost reminiscent of the hazes on Titan. Titan is the largest moon of Saturn, 
and it's really famous for having a very yellowish haze layer that completely enshrouds its surface, which turns out to be really, really fascinating as well. It's a very Earth-like surface with river valleys, mountains, sand dunes, even lakes. Don't get too excited, though. It's all liquid methane. That's right. Uh, so Titan is a frigid 90 to 95 Kelvin at the surface. That's a temperature scale that we scientists like to use. I don't even know what it is. So <laughs> 270 <laughs> Kelvin is zero degrees Celsius, which is the freezing point of water. So this is a good 180 or so Celsius below freezing. And that is really cold. And so water at those temperatures is as hard as solid rock. And water makes up pretty much the bedrock of, of Titan's surface. The mobile, mobile surfaces on Titan are methane and other what we call hydrocarbons, things made of carbons and hydrogens. Um, and methane is a molecule made up of one carbon and four hydrogen atoms. On Earth, you'd probably be more familiar with it from cow farts than anything else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, we call it natural gas here. Um, so it's in the gaseous form on Earth because it's nice and warm here, but on Titan, it condenses into liquid and forms the lakes and seas there. Now, luckily for us, we have an expert on clouds and hazes throughout the solar system, and he has studied the clouds and hazes on Titan. Um, so, Peter, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about why, why Titan is so hazy? Okay, sure. So the reason why Titan is hazy is due to a combination of sunlight and the composition of Titan's atmosphere. The major part of sunlight that is important here is the ultraviolet, the UV, the same stuff that gives you a sunburn here on Earth. Uh, but the more powerful parts of UV is also good at destroying molecules. A UV uh, light particle or photon goes in, collides with the molecule, and breaks it apart. Uh, the other part of this is the composition of Titan's atmosphere, and that's made up of nitrogen and, as Mike mentioned, methane. And methane is the key here, because if you have a UV photon, very powerful UV photon coming in from the sun, hits a methane molecule, it can break it up into, say, uh, CH3 and one hydrogen atom. Now, CH3 is very unstable. It's missing that hydrogen. It wants to grab onto something like a hydrogen. It can certainly grab onto the hydrogen again, or it can grab onto another CH3 that was a previous methane that was destroyed. And in this way, you can create ethane, or C2H6, right? You have two CH3s. Uh, and this process continues. The ethane can be broken up, it can form propane. The propane gets bro uh, broken up, it can form butane, and so on and so on. And this way, this, this photochemistry is what we call, can create very large molecules. Now, within Titan's atmosphere, besides methane, you also have nitrogen. A little bit of that nitrogen also gets broken up. So some of that nitrogen also gets incorporated into the methane. There's some oxygen there as well. And in the end, you get this massive molecule of carbons and nitrogens and hydrogens and oxygens. And this uh, is what we like to call Tholins. Not quite the same. Tholins is something that was made in the laboratory that combines all of these molecules, and we like to think that's what the Titan haze is made of, because um, this chemistry essentially leads you there. And these molecules can get bigger still, and because they absorb in the UV, that essentially takes away the blue part of light. 
And if you take away the blue part, what do you have left? You have reds, you have your oranges, you have yellows, and that's why Titan is orange. Uh, it's because of this haze. And you know, these, these giant molecules get bigger and bigger still, and eventually they clump into actual particles or haze particles that then you know, sediment down. And uh, in fact, ultimately, these particles make up those sand dunes that you were talking about, Mike. So, Peter, you've now escaped to Northern California, mm-hmm. uh, up at NASA Ames, but Elise and I are stuck down here in the Los haze. Angeles, <laughs> in yes. the haze of Los Angeles. You. Is, is that a similar kind of process that makes the LA metropolitan area so darn hazy? Yeah, can I go home and tell my mom that I'm a Titanian? <laughs> almost, almost. Uh, essentially, yes, that's that's what's happening. It's, it's photochemistry all over again, except you know, we're, we're lucky because not only do we have carbons and hydrogens, uh, we, also have, we also have nitrogen, just like Titan, but we also have sulfurs, Sulf, uh, you know, SO, SO2, all these other molecules that, you know, they join in on the fun. And that <laughs> creates this smog that permeates uh, Los Angeles and Beijing and various other very developed cities. And it doesn't help Los Angeles. There's mountains all over the place that traps it there. And, you know, makes it a, a Sometimes you can't nice see the mountains, though. <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. So Titan may not have sulfur, but you mentioned that its haze particles were made of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen. These are very familiar molecules to anybody who knows a little bit about what life is made out of. So people often say that Titan is a target of astrobiological interest. Elise, could you give us one reason why life might be present on Titan, and one reason against having life on Titan. Oh, one and one. This is a little hard. (laughs) I'll do my best, though. We'll have a a whole episode later on about the origins of life and everything, I'm sure. But uh, just right now, for those who are curious and have heard about Titan as an astrobiological term. Yeah, so I actually really like the idea of life on Titan. Everything that we know about life on Earth mandates that carbon is just what you've got to have. It's great at forming long chains. Um, through all kinds of mechanisms. Beyond carbon, you need oxygen, you need nitrogen, a few other trace elements, but really these carbon chains are what people often start talking about when they're talking about life. And you'll often hear the word organic molecule thrown around. That doesn't necessarily mean it was made by life, it just means that it's a carbon-based molecule. And so Titan is just literally covered in hydrocarbon soup. It is covered in these organic molecules. And um, there are chemical pathways using these molecules that yield enough energy for something like a microbe that, that we are familiar with um, would be able to use to generate enough energy to live. And they've, they've actually observed a dip in hydrogen in the atmosphere that is pretty much identical to what was predicted in a paper that was like theorizing what kind of signature microbes on Titan's surface would leave in the atmosphere if they used this metabolic pathway that ended up using hydrogen. But there are some significant challenges. Uh, Everything we know about life on Earth also tells us that you need water, and that's just not going to happen on Titan. Titan is a world where the liquid that's dominant is basically as reverse from water as you can get. It is a nonpolar solvent, whereas water has these nice hydrogen bonds that like to pull ionic compounds apart, dissolve things really well. You've probably heard in your intro science classes that water is the universal solvent, and it's pretty good at dissolving stuff, except for makeup. Uh, (laughs) uh, The uh, Titan is basically oily. Um, If you could imagine something that 
you know, when you mix oil and water, they don't they don't mix well together. That's because one is a protic polar solvent and one is not. And Titan is in the not category. So cells on Titan would have to be radically different. They'd have to have basically reverse chemistry with cell walls that were nonpolar on the outside and polar on the inside instead of the way we have it here. And also because Titan is so, so, so cold, all of the chemistry would be different. Um, life might be so slow if it existed that we wouldn't even be able to recognize it if we saw it. And, and really just, it would be a completely different way of being than we're familiar with now because it would not be based on water. It would be based on an entirely different set of chemistries. So while the flexibility of carbon is there, the feasibility of an entirely different system of low temperature, life yielding chemistries is kind of hard to swallow for a lot of people. Thanks, Elise. Yeah, Titan's got all sorts of crazy atmospheric chemistry leading to larger and larger, more complex, prebiotic possibly, definitely organic molecules. And that's all encompassed in the haze action on Titan. But Titan also has clouds. Now, I personally get clouds and hazes very confused myself. So Peter, what exactly is the difference between a haze and a cloud? That is the million dollar question, isn't it? There's no consensus, I'll tell you that much. Uh, there's not much consensus among the field of planetary science. There's also the field of exoplanetary science, uh, which looks at planets beyond the solar system, and there the definition is even more complicated. So much, you know, this, this has been an issue for many years, and the most recent attempt to solve this is by Professor Sarah Horst at Johns Hopkins University. And Who is a Caltech alum, by the way. Yes. Got absolutely. a plug for our school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she, works, uh, she works in the lab, actually, creating stuff that is similar to what makes up the Titan haze. It's very fascinating stuff. And being an expert uh, on Titan science as she is, she uh, gave us a definition, and it is this. Clouds are made up of stuff that is pre-existing in the atmosphere, like water. Water is hanging around in vapor phase, for example. On Earth. On Earth, yes, of course, on Earth. And, you know, if you have a, a box of air that gets cold enough, the water then may condense to form a cloud. So it is something that is already around that then condense into a liquid or solid form. A haze uh, is something different in that it may not have existed previously. It may be formed through chemistry. Um, so you have all the molecules in the atmosphere. Nothing you know, will condense to form a haze, but if these molecules are broken up by light, then they, you know, if they react with each other afterwards to create a molecules that may, become, uh, may join with other molecules of similar kind to form a solid, then that could be what you would call a haze. So that is how they could be different. And you, you can see how this uh, would be directly applicable to Titan because, uh, as we talked about, all of these orangey haze stuff is formed from photochemistry that didn't previously exist. You didn't have these giant molecules floating around without light shining on it on the atmosphere and making them appear. Now, Titan also have clouds. These, in fact, uh, these giant molecules and become particles settle down, and in the lower atmosphere, there is enough methane and ethane gas flowing around such that they are saturated, which cause them to actually condense onto these haze particles. And that action, that condensation action, makes them clouds. So you have these ethane and methane clouds that perhaps even have, you know, you have methane and ethane rain 
to form those lakes and rivers that we see on Titan. So let me see if I can just recap that in one sentence. Clouds are formed by a phase transition from gas to either liquid or solid in the atmosphere. There's nothing changing about the makeup of the particles, they're just changing their phase of matter. Whereas hazes are created by chemistry that is induced by radiation, usually sunlight, hitting molecules, breaking them apart, and the molecules recombine into something that forms aggregates and creates a haze particle. Is that accurate? That's, that's a great summary. And as with all categorizations in science, it breaks down once you get to different regimes. I'll say that much. Um, it gets progressively more complicated once you leave uh, the cold atmosphere of Titan and into the hotter atmospheres of, say, Venus or even some exoplanets. But we'll get to that some other time. Awesome. Well, we're running low on time. So who knows if whatever desert planet that was that the, I'm going to mess this up, Shenzhou, uh, say it again for me. Shenzhou. Shenzhou, yeah, you know, it. was bursting through whether those were clouds, whether those were hazes, whether they were, it was a combination of both. But that strange new world definitely had something very cool happening on it. Peter, why don't you just wrap things up by telling us about one other strange new world that is a planet, not actually a planet, uh, in our solar system that also has hazes on it. Yes, uh, this was the subject of a great war several years back, and of course the object we're talking about is good old Pluto, the planet that was a planet that may still be a planet depending on who you ask. Don't ask Mike Brown. We're, we're going to be very quiet about it in case he hears us. So uh, Pluto was the subject of New Horizons flyby, uh, I think back in, tw back in 2015. Yeah. That's almost two years ago, which is frightening. And what New Horizons found was that when you look at Pluto in silhouette, there is a very ethereal haze, glow, let's call it a glow, surrounding the shadow of Pluto. And the only thing that can create that and make scientific sense are haze particles. And it turns out that based on the chemistry of Pluto's atmosphere, that haze would likely be very, very similar to that of Titan. Pluto's atmosphere, although much thinner than Titan, is also made up of mostly nitrogen and a smidge of methane. Now that smidge of methane is enough to start this, this rich chain of photochemistry that leads to these, these tholen, perhaps tholen, particles. So uh, this is really interesting because you know Titan is a large moon of Saturn, Pluto is a small Kuiper belt object, Kuiper belt is kind of the debris field of the solar system beyond the orbit of Neptune, and yet they have very similar chemistry, and you can almost say they're very, very similar worlds. Well, I hope you learned something new about Pluto, Titan, clouds, and hazes, and are just itching for more science and Star Trek. That concludes Episode 1 of Strange New Worlds. See you out there.